0: Ecclesiastes 12, we end our series this morning, picking up in verse 13 and reading to the end. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, for some of you, you're going to be relieved to see Ecclesiastes be done. It's been a little bit overly philosophical for your tastes on a Sunday morning. Uh, for some of you, you've really enjoyed it. We're going to be going a number of places this summer. We're, we're going to jump into the life, just kind of do a biopic over the next uh, month and a half or so looking at the life of Elijah, Elijah and Elisha, and then we're going to dive back into Ephesians, which we have uh, been in a long-term series of Ephesians, taking little breaks like we've been doing uh, but we will dive back into Ephesians, the second half of it, uh, and the second half of this summer, uh, leading to uh, a look at Ephesians chapter 5 on marriage for the entirety of the fall. So that's where we're going. But we have, we're finishing up Ecclesiastes. And, and like I said, Ecclesiastes, for some of you, has been really, really great. For others of you, you have found Ecclesiastes a little, a bit, um, a wee bit philosophical, uh, maybe. And, and, it, and indeed, wisdom literature in the Bible uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, jobs much of it does uh, seem philosophical. And, and that is for good reason. You know, actually the word philosophy literally means love of wisdom. Love of wisdom. That's what the root word in Greek of philosophy has two words. Philo, which means love, and Sophia, which means wisdom. It is literally the pursuit or the love of wisdom. That's what the study of philosophy is. But Ecclesiastes has probably been annoying in much the same way that you think of a of philosophy as being annoying, in that it seems to run in circles. It seems like week in and week out, we would hit some, some of the same territory. Hey, this won't satisfy you. It's all vanity. Enjoy life, though, and fear God. That, we're going in circles, it seems. And round and round we go. And this is what, for many of us, why we, we can't stand to read the philosophers of our age or any age, because they seem to be constantly chasing their own tail, They have questions in which they never actually come to any firm answers about. They like to poke holes in everybody else's worldviews, but they never put their own feet down anywhere. And frankly, you're not even sure what the point of what they're saying, anyways. This is how many of us view philosophy. But Koheleth, the teacher here of Ecclesiastes, is a philosophy professor. But he is a better one than the ones that the world usually offers us. He loves wisdom, and he's been pursuing it. And he wants you to love wisdom as well. But he actually reaches a conclusion, a very clear and definitive conclusion about the essence of your life. And how does he just say it? What's the summary we could say? Fear God. He doesn't just say fear God, but he actually moves on. It says, fear God and obey his commandments. And this says, this is the whole duty of man, that phrase, the whole duty of man, is essentially saying this is the essence and purpose of life. This is what orients and gives meaning to your life. He's been looking at this word vanity or this Hebrew word hevel, which some translate meaningless. In other words, it's vanity or vain or vapor. It means that everything in life is kind of like a breath or a vapor. It's temporary and passing. It doesn't say that these things are bad, just that they slip through your fingers. They're like wind like pleasure and popularity and youth and work and wealth and achievement, these things will pass away and ultimately won't fulfill us. But he says there is one thing, one thing that will never pass away, one thing that is rock solid, one thing that is objective, and that is God. And so two words in particular the he gives us this morning that will help you shape your life, the arc of your life, toward a life of wisdom, and they are these two words, fear and judgment. The fear of God and the judgment of God, and those are the two points we're going to look at this morning. First, let's look at the fear of God. If you want to get wise, you need to have a fear of God. The fear of God is the very end, and might we also say it is the beginning of wisdom, right? Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Fearing God is what will ultimately give you not just wisdom in this world, but joy and contentment and a clarity of purpose. But it is not simply the beginning, it is also the end. What the teacher has done is given us, he said, I'm gonna give you a journey through life and all that life can offer you. He says, I've experienced it all. Wealth, power, pleasure, beauty, youth, work, all these things, and yet... At the end of it all, what gives life purpose is the fear of the Lord. And his conclusion is, fear God and do what he tells you to do. Center your life around the Lord. And that is a way to have a fulfilling, joyous, and content life. Even with all of life's chaos and confusions, this is where you center your life. Now, this is profound, but it's almost a ridiculous claim. Before it is those things, though, the statement, fear God, is confusing to many of us. It's confusing because sometimes the Bible seems to really encourage fear, like in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. But in other places, it seems like fear is a bad thing from which God has actually sent Jesus Christ to rescue us from. Right? 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Whenever angels show up, what's the first thing that they tell people to not to do? Don't fear. And in fact, the most often quoted commandment in all the scripture are these three words. Do not fear. This sounds like something that we're supposed to grow not out into, but out of in life and maturity. And yet at the same time, again and again in the scriptures, we are called to fear. And specifically, we're called to fear God. Not only does it say it in Proverbs chapter 9, but it also says it in Proverbs chapter 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Psalm chapter 34, verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. And this confuses us. Am I to be afraid or not be afraid? Am I to have a fear of God or not have a fear of God? And in fact, some Christians would actually say, some Christians would say, listen, we are getting rid of fear entirely, and if you have, you have a place in your sermons and your preaching in the life of church where you're bringing fear, then you're going to bring self-righteousness and condemnation to people's life, and that is no good. Whereas other people think that the number one thing that the church needs now is to recover a sense of a fear of, being, of tremoring and terror before God's. Well, here's what I want to do in regard to this point on the fear of God, is I want to convince you once and for all that the fear of God means you will tremble in his presence, but it will not be because you're afraid of him. It will not be because you're afraid. What is the fear of God? We must make a distinction from looking at those verses. We must make a distinction between different types of fear and the way the Bible talks about it. Different types of fear of God that we see in the Bible. One is wrong. It's reasonable, but it's wrong. And one is right and it's good. We'll call one sinful fear. Before we get to that sinful fear, let me give you an illustration of where I see both of these types of fear in the same place. Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 20. Now, this is Moses he has is, he is called the people of God before the mountain. God is about to give Moses the Ten Commandments. He is making a covenant with Israel through Moses, and he says this in verse 18. Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain was smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. But then Moses said this, verse 20. Moses said to the people, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And then Moses says back to them, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Did you hear what he's saying? Do not fear, do not be afraid, instead draw near so that you might what? Fear God. Don't fear so that you might learn to fear. In other words, He's speaking about fear in two different ways. And so one, we're gonna look at the sinful type of fear that we need to get rid of. It is this type of fear that Moses wanted to remove from the life of the Israelites at the feet of God at Sinai. It is this fear that we want to remove that we saw in Adam when he first sinned. What does he do when he sins? He hides. Adam was the first one to feel this type of fear. And his reaction in that moment is that its essential nature is that sinful fear drives you away from God. Did you see it in Exodus chapter 20 verse 18? What was the people's response physically when they were afraid of God? The people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. This is the fear of the unbeliever who actually hates God, who remains a rebel at heart, who fears being exposed as a sinner and so must remain far from God. This is the fear that Martin Luther experienced before coming to faith. Yes, he was a good monk, and Luther once explained, though, that under medieval Roman Catholicism, he had grown up with this. He said this. Here's how he experienced. Christ was depicted in the religion that I was given was depicted as a grim tyrant, a furious and stern judge who demanded much of us and imposed good works as payment for our sins. My heart and bad conscience quite naturally shun him whom I fear. So he's talking about almost like the psychology of because of his sin and God's wrath that he's what I want is to be away from God. I shun God, and he can. I did not love God. Yes, I actually hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, and secretly, if not blasphemously, I was angry with God. We want a biblical illustration. There's actually the parable of the unfaithful servant. Remember, remember Jesus gives the parable of, of, of a guy who leaves to a faraway country and has a couple servants and he gives each of them a certain amount of money and he says, I want you to invest it and steward it. And he comes back and there's one unfaithful servant of the three. And the unfaithful servant says, says why he didn't invest the money. He goes and hides it and he explains why he didn't invest the money. He said, I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. In other words, this is an illustration of one who's like out of there being afraid of the master, will not use their life for good and for the master's glory. He doesn't see the master's kindness. He only sees the master in his parsimonious severity, a scrooge in the sky, and therefore the servant is simply afraid. One final illustration from a quote. In case you think maybe I'm trying to downplay the holiness of God in saying that it doesn't mean being afraid. Let me bring a Puritan into the mix. Here's a Puritan Stephen Sharnock said. He said, when we're afraid of God in the simple way that our response is to run with hatred. He says, when we apprehend a thing that is hurtful to us, we desire much evil to it. You, can you read the old English? God is hurtful to us. We're afraid of him hurting us, and so we desire evil, as may render it incapable of doing us the hurt. The fearful man, he says, wishes God deprived of his being. Out of slavish fear, he now talks about religious people, out of slavish fear, people will perform all manner of external duties in order to appease a God that they secretly despise. To all the world, they can seem devout and exemplary Christians. These poor slaves can even pontificate on the important, forgotten, forgotten importance of the fear of God, only it is the fear, the wrong fear, that they know. There must be a fear that is beyond, that is something better than simply being afraid of God. And one final point to kind of drive it home is this, is this cannot be the only kind of fear? Being afraid of God cannot be what we mean by a right good fear of God because it says that Jesus actually has a fear of the Lord. Isaiah chapter one, 11, verses 1 through 3, it says, There is the prophecy of Jesus coming. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its shoot shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. One person of the Trinity is not afraid of another person in the Trinity. Therefore, we have to mean something more than simply being afraid. It is something better and it is something good. And so let's look at the good, the holy type of fear. St. Clair Ferguson. I think has the, the best definition. I, I've used a placeholder definition for the fear of God in this series. I call it simply this. Living before the face of God. Quorum Deo. Living before the face of God, the reality of who God is. And I think this is a larger definition that is in, in line with that. He says this Sinclair Ferguson in Defying Fear of God. He says, it is the indefinable mixture of reverence, pleasure, joy, and all that fills our heart when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. It is these joint truths and what they do and affect in our hearts is the fear of God. A holy, life-giving fear is a fear that emanates from a, the joint sense of God's beauty and the holiness of his character along with a profound sense that that beautiful God has come to love us. When you stand before that which is truly lovely, which is glorious to behold, there is actually something frightening about it. And the sheer loveliness of something can both draw us near and make us want to hide, such as the impulse with the beauty of God. God. God is the creator who made the stars and named them one by one. He is great and he is majestic. He is full of might and power and holiness and goodness. He is ineffable in creativity and he is a God who has a soul-piercing love for us. Now often now what comes with the fear of God is the sense of our place in the face of his beauty. Right? When, we feel, when you're in the presence of someone who is lovely and beautiful, what do you begin to, to notice about yourself? You start to remember the acne that you saw the, in, the, in the, the, the mirror this morning. You begin to remember that you didn't quite uh, wash correctly. You remember to, think, to have a full sense of your own ugliness. And in the presence of his might, we realize that we are but dust. He is eternal. We are creatures, he is the creator. He is lo- lovely, we are ugly. And the teacher of Ecclesiastes has been reminding us over and over and over again of our place. You may be a political bigwig, but you don't have the power of God. You may be rich, but it will go away. His riches don't. You may be very religious, but it's nothing compared to His holiness. You may be very knowledgeable and worldly wise, but it is nothing compared to the fullness of God's wisdom. You can't wrap your mind around His wisdom. While this is not, and this cannot be, this sense of our own unworthiness, is not in the essence of fear, right? For Jesus could not have had this kind of fear, right? Jesus was not, was not feeling ugly in the face of God. But it does, for creatures, provide us the context for the other aspect of the fear of the Lord, The fear of the Lord begins by seeing the fullness of his beauty and his character and then the other aspect is when you begin to see the beauty of that character turn towards you and face you and say, I have affection for you. This is what draws out the fear of the God in us. The all that he loves us. Yes, it is our place that we are small and weak and sinful, but it is also our place that this beautiful God has placed his eyes of affection upon us. We are more precious than we ever dared dream. We are small, but we are delighted in. We are weak, but we are dearly protected by God in his sight. And so we must get this. The fear of God, a holy, right, life-giving fear that is, that, is, that is encouraged in the scriptures, is when we realize that God, who is perfectly holy and lovely, has set his affection on us. Those who might see ourselves as unworthy. Let Let me just show you a few places in the Bible that show that it's actually his, that realization of this lovely God extending his love to us is actually what draws the true, right, good fear out of us. Psalm 130, verse 4, says this. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The forgiveness of God God is willing and able to forgive us. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He has seen us, and he has held us still with love and compassion. And he draws near to us, and he does so at great cost to himself. And when you realize that, your heart is filled with awe, with reverence, with amazement and joy. It is forgiveness that leads to a sense of fear. We'll give you another passage where God, where the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament is speaking about the new covenant that is coming in Christ Jesus. He's talking about what God will do through the Messiah. He says this, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth. Who shall hear of the good that I do for them? And what's the result of all that good? And they shall fear and tremble Because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide. What leads to fear? Seeing the goodness of God to you. And so the fear of God, once again is the joint realization that here before us stands one who is mighty, who is light, who is holy, who is glorious, who is majestic, who is a gleaming jewel of righteousness, who is inevitable in his brightness, who is the shining star and the perfect one and that perfect one has looked upon you with his blazing eyes with love and affection. And the response that when comes out of a heart that beats with any sort of life is all reverence, fear. And the evidence of such fear is what? Fear God and obey his commandments. The end of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments. If you want to know if you fear God, then you look and you see, are you keeping his commandments? The fear of a child takes great pains, great pains not to displease the father, not because they believe the father is going to crush them, but because they love the Father and they've experienced the Father's love so beautifully that they desire not to displease Him. And so it is when you see this beautiful and bright and shining holy God turn His eyes of affection upon you, you go, I desire not to displease Him. And in fact, the fear of the Lord means your life begins to revolve around Him, around His loveliness and around His love for you. You know, remember, kind of take an astronomical kind of look at it, Remember centuries ago there was the sun there was the belief that the sun revolved around the earth. And as we know now that belief was wrong, the earth revolves around the sun and so it is when you come to the fear of the Lord. This is the way to a wise and good life to make your life center around him that he becomes the sun of your solar system. Ever had a and this is and his his life can handle this. His power and his might can handle you centering your life around him. You ever experienced this? Maybe for those of you who've been in high school or those in college, you had a friend who suddenly gets a boyfriend or a girlfriend and they fall off the map. You're like, "Uh, where did Sam go? Like He got a girlfriend and we haven't seen him in like six months. What's happened there? His life now revolves around somebody. Now, what usually happens in that sort of relationship? It doesn't go anywhere good. In fact, revolving your life around one particular person usually leads to a disordered life. You lose friends. You lose security. Things go badly in that kind of situation. But when you revolve your life around the Lord, He has the weight and the gravitas in which the centrifugal force of your life can be centered around Him, and He puts the stars and the planets of your life in right order. Now this has implications for every area of your life, and I don't have time to show it in a bunch of different ways, but I'll choose one. Some of you live lives of utter fear of utter fear in a bad way of other people. In fact, there's a a well-known Christian counseling book called this, when people are big and God is small. And some of you have that problem. And when people are big, it means your life is ordered around people. Not to love them and care for them as God has called you to, but to get something from them. And so you spend your life being manipulated by others and codependent on others and controlling and manipulating others or simply being angry at others. And so what do you need? You need a better son. You need to see that God is more lovely. He is bigger and better and more powerful than your, fa- your parents, whose failures still control your life. Or your spouse's perpetual critique of you, which constantly leaves you upset and angry. God is bigger and better. And so you must learn to reflect in the midst of the face of the pressures of those around you to look and say, God is bigger and better Their word about me does not ultimately matter. What ultimately matters is, am I living before the face of God? Am I revolving my life around him? And what you need in that moment in order to move out of a place where other people, they're disappointed with you, you, or your sense of always having to grovel at their feet, does not control you. And in order to get away from that, you have to go and reflect upon the grandeur of God and what he says about you. You need to see that this God is bigger and better and has entered in and he has drawn near to you and he says, You are mine. I am with you. I am for you. I walk beside you. I approve of you. I value you. And nothing in this world, what it says about you, can change that or undo it. No matter what your spouse, how they critique you. And therefore, in that moment when your spouse critiques you, what will that allow you to do? I can listen. Maybe they're right. It doesn't have to crush me, though, because my world is not falling apart. Because him and what he says about me, that's my world. That's my world. And this will actually give order to your life. It will banish the anxieties from your life as you reflect upon the beauty and the power and the might of God, the gloriousness of him. John Donne. John Donne is, again, one of those kind of Puritan figures. You would never want his life. He had a terrible life. God gave him different Difficult providence after difficult providence after difficult providence. He lost wives. He lost children. He was afflicted for much of his life. And on his deathbed, he contracted the plague. He's like, oh, that's a nice chair on the top of my life of suffering. But here's what he says. At the end of all these things, one of his final words was this, Give me, O Lord, a fear of which I may not need be afraid. What he is saying there is this. You can either fear God or you can fear everything else. You can either center your life upon God and what he says about you and who he is, which can never be taken from you, or you can center it on anything and everything else in this world where moth and rust may destroy, and you will live your life in perpetual fear. Or you can choose this fear, a life-giving fear. One kind of, one final quote on the fear of God to sum everything up from Charles Spurgeon in this childlike fear, there is not an atom of fear that's which signifies being afraid, not one atom. We who believe in Jesus are not afraid of our Father. God forbid that we ever should be. The nearer we can get to Him, the happier are, we are. Our highest wish is to be ever, forever with Him and to be lost in Him. But still we pray that we may not grieve Him. We beseech Him to keep us from turning aside from him, and we ask for his tender pity towards our infirmities, and we plead with him to forgive us and to deal graciously with us for his dear son's sake. As loving children, we feel a holy awe and reverence as we realize our relationship to him who is our father in heaven. The fear of the Lord. It's the end of the matter. Fear of the Lord. And if you will center your life around this, you will live a life of fulfillment and wisdom But there's another word, judgment. (laughs) This longing to please and to honor the perfect and lovely one is enhanced all the more when we consider this, that it is this very loved one that you will stand before and give an account one day. It is the lovely one that you will stand before and give an account. And so the judgment of God gives you a vision for the wise life now. Here's what it says. Ecclesiastes ends this way. Last verse. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, to us, to our modern evangelical ears, this strikes us as very bad news and a bad way to end a book. Because we don't normally have positive thoughts about the judgment of God, do we? Now, if there is any good news to us about the judgment of God, it is usually that he will come and judge all the injustice of the world, and to us, that is a good thing. Great. Sick them. Get them, God, with your justice. That's awesome. God will take all the right imperfect judgments that we make and that the world makes, and he'll say, I'm going to make everything right and good and perfect. I'm going to put an end to all the evil. And we say, that's wonderful. But that's about the end of our positive thoughts about God's judgments. But I want you to see here that the the vision of the wise life is one viewed where you look forward and you say, I live now in view of the coming judgment. And actually every one of your life, your deeds in this life, every thought, action, and word will be judged. Yes, even for you who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm here to tell you this is actually very good news. I Two things I want you to see in in the scriptures. Two things you need to clearly understand. One, God will judge everything. Everything. Matthew, actually I'm not going to get there yet. Ecclesiastes 3.17 says God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. Notice it's not just the wicked who's going to be judged. Ecclesiastes 12.14 will bring every judgment. Does that, every deed, does that mean some deeds? No, every deed. Matthew 12.36, I tell you on the day of judgment, God will bring every account, will give account, people will give account for every careless judgment Word, they speak. Uh-oh. Second clear point. God's judgment is also, though, his declaration over every act of this life as being good or evil. God will judge both the good and the evil. Now, chapter 12, verse 14 says, God will bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil. It also says this in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul's writing to Christians here, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Do you see it? Both evil and good are judged. God's judgment is a declaration over every thought, word, and deed, desire, and declaring things as they are. He says that's evil. That's good. That's evil. That's good. That's a lot more evil. Ah, that's good though. And look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? And then he says this. Then each one will receive his commendation. Did you hear the word correctly? Not condemnation. Commendation from God. Understand. And because he comes to judge both the good and the evil, there is a judgment of condemnation coming. No one is going to get away with anything. And so some will say, well, that's great. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, God's judgment of commendation over my sin and evil deeds no longer applies to me anymore. My judgment day was on the cross 2,000 years ago. And to that I said, yes and amen. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you know what? There's two kinds of judgment did you see that? There's a condemnation for evil and there's a commendation for that which is good. Condemnation for evil and a commendation for that which is good. In other words, God's judgment is also him looking for reasons to declare and approve over your life as that which is good. That which is good. You have an appointment waiting for you on high. When you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ Jesus, and what awaits you there is not a decision whether you go to heaven or hell, but whether you will, what degree your joyous reward will be. And that is good news. So we might wonder, in fact, in that conversation, when we stand before God, will He bring up my sins? You know, my dad used to talk, talk to me and try to encourage me as I remember as a young child, he would use the illustration and say, Listen, beware of disobeying God because one day you will stand before him and he's going to put all of your deeds upon a a huge movie screen. Now, do you think that's right? I think there's many in the church who would say, that is evil and that is wrong. Here's what Louis Burkhoff says, though, in his systematic theology. It is sometimes objected that the sinners of believers which are pardoned certainly will not be published, that means made known, at that time. But scripture leads us to expect that they actually will be. But, though, they will always be revealed as pardoned sins. At his judgment seat, Christ will speak the truth about every thought, word, deed that you've had. He will not lie. It's not like a funeral at the end where we lie about how good someone's life is. He's not going to do that. He's not going to get up and be like, talked about somebody who lived a jerky life and be like, well, he was a real sweet fellow. That's not what he's going to do. He's going to tell the truth about your life. But he's never going to do it to shame you. And he's always going to bring the pardon of Christ Jesus and his work on the cross upon whatever sins. But know this, that in the midst of him going act by act, deed by deed, thought by thought, in the midst of that judgment, he will also actively look for that which is good and beautiful in your life. And he will keep bringing it up. Moment by moment, he'll say, look, look, you were paid. You did it. It's amazing you actually obeyed in this moment at 2:30 in the afternoon, you did it, and you'll receive commendation and praise. Or think of it this way: Our divine coach will go over the game film at the end of the game, and we won. But the game we played was actually rather imperfect. In fact, we stunk. And if we hadn't had Jesus on our team, we would have lost. But he won the game. He took over everything. We were running in the wrong direction. It's good. He came and got the ball from us and ran the right direction. It was all good. So we won. But now now we're sitting and we're going over the game film. And he's pointing out some moments and he's going, that's not good. You ran the wrong way. (laughs) But here's your trophy. Because right here, you sort of did a chop block that was okay. It wasn't awful. And I'm going to give you credit for that. So here are the implications of this for the wise life. The wise life is lived for the reward of his judgment. We must look, we just looked at the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where Paul tells us that God will judge both the deeds of evil and good. But the verse before that actually says this. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And in Colossians, it actually says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Not moderately pleasing, not partially pleasing, not even mostly pleasing, fully pleasing. I think some of us, in the midst of the conversations of whether we're righteous or self-righteous, whether we believe in grace or don't believe in grace, have actually lost the vision of pleasing God, which is not a matter of grace or not grace. I think for so many of you, grace only has to do with the removal of God's wrath. And the removal of God's wrath is true and good and amazing, That there is no condemnation for you. But you see that God's grace that sets you free from condemnation is also now the one that gives you the ability to seek commendation in your life. And both are of his grace. In other words, the condemnation of God's judgment is gone for us in Christ Jesus. Good, you got side A. Go to side B. God, do you see that God's grace is also working in your life so that you live a life right now that is pleasing to Him, that will receive a reward, and live your life for that that reward. Live your life for that judgment day where he would declare over you, and here's Paul's example of this in Philippians chapter three. He says, I, "I live for nothing but knowing Christ and making him known." And then he says this, "But not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Jesus Christ has made me his own." Is this pressing on make him any more or less Jesus's? No. He's already belongs to Jesus. But he says, I press on to make it known my own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straying forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, here's the wise life. The wise life in Paul's eyes is this, to live a life in which you say, I want to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not a life that goes, I have grace for my sins back here, but I'm going to live however I want in here. No, it's, look what he's done for me. And now I will please him with my life. And this means, to close Ecclesiastes and to close our time this morning, it means your life is not meaningless. The number one word repeated over and over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes is "hevel." It's translated in many different ways. Vanity of vanities, some translated it. Vapor of vapors. Some, though, maybe most often in some translations, it's translated as meaningless. Everything is meaningless, and that is wrong. That is not what Ecclesiastes teaches. That messes with the whole reading of the book. What you're going through right now is not meaningless. Your day today is not meaningless. It matters, and it matters forever. How we live today will matter for a bazillion years from today because you have an opportunity today to please your Father. And the point of the book is to say that while things on this earth seem to pass away, but in heaven, the Lord of heaven and earth, in His hands, the Alpha and the Omega, your life is not meaningless. And one day you will be welcomed in His presence. And what do you think it will be like? Here's a Ray Lord, one of my favorite pastors to listen to describes it. what it will probably be like. He says, on that day, by His grace, I will stand before Him at His judgment seat. And He will say to me, would you like a hug? (laughs) And I'll say, oh, please. I'm so tired. And he'll say, no rush to leave. I got time. And so maybe a hundred years, maybe a thousand years after all my pain and anguish are completely healed forever, my savior and judge will lift my head up and he says, okay, it's time. Let's go back through your life. I've kept a record because remember, every hair on your head matters to me. And every minute and every hour that you spent mattered to me. And he'll go through and he'll look, He'll say, listen, well, let's pick a day. How about May 15th, 2022? Let's look at what you did with it. And all of your sins for today, he'll say, oh, that's pardoned. Do you see that? And Jesus will wave at the corner and be like, bloodstained hand, you're pardoned, no condemnation, and then he'll go, look, at 2.30, you didn't yell at your kid, and, and, and you, 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 you sought to, you asked for forgiveness in this moment, and you, you extended grace to this person and your family, and he will reassure me that not only am I, you're forgiven, but here, I'm going to give you a reward for how you spent May 15th, 2022. What that means for you, who are actually living today on May fifteenth, twenty twenty-two, is you can look at May sixteenth, and you can know that you can wake up tomorrow and the next day that you are loved by your Creator, that you're forgiven by the blood of Jesus, that your condemnation is taken away, that you're declared right in God's sight, and you have nothing but before you but to seek His reward. That's what leads to a wise, a wise, and good and beautiful life. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we need to relearn the fullness of grace. The grace um, has covered our sins of the past. The grace is also, as Andy talked about earlier, has set us free Set us free to live a life that is pleasing to you. And so we can choose to put money in the plate. And we can choose to use our words kindly. And we can do things like take every thought captive. And we can be quiet. And we can speak words of life. Knowing that all of these actions, they give glory to you and they win for us crowns in heaven. And so, Lord, we thank you. What we praise, we ask you this morning that what you might do is, as people who are no longer condemned, who are accepted and beloved, that you may now give us the grace of the Holy Spirit to teach us to live a life that is pleasing to you. And where we lack the wisdom to do that, would you come help us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.